Good morning, everybody. I trust that you feel very happy and honored to be in the house of the Lord today. My wife and I most certainly do. Imagine God in heaven, the great creator of the ends of the earth, has condescended to come down and to sit with us, to walk up and down the aisle, and to speak into our individual hearts and lives, and to impart blessing and all that it's going to take, not just to survive the pandemic, but to survive this very critical run-up to the coming again of the Lord Jesus. We've not seen anything, anything yet, compared with what we have experienced up to now, of the things that will happen before Jesus comes back for his bride. But it's going to be tough and tight, and it's going to be deeply challenging. And let's be honest about it, many are not going to make it, many are going to fall and falter and fail. I pray very earnestly that that will not be you or me. Many are going to fail. Many are already sowing the seeds of their own defeat and their own compromising, clearly, which will lead to a very uh, disappointing and defeated end for themselves. But it's great to be gathered around the table of remembrance, great to be gathered around the throne of grace, and it's great to be gathered around the Word of God. Last Lord's Day evening was an evening that those of us who were present will not soon forget when the power of God and the presence of God was so palpable in the house, the singing, the praying, the preaching, and then to see 11 believers openly confessing Christ in the waters of baptism. To do that in Africa, particularly if you are a Muslim, you are signing your own death warrant. You're not just saying, I'm ready to die. Technically, that is what you've done. To, apost to apostatize from the mosque, you are signing your own death warrant. And even family members will count it a great honor if they point a gun to your head and if they blow you into eternity. And they don't mind if they uh, go to prison for the rest of their lives or indeed if they're shot uh, by police authority in doing that act. So you were not signing your death warrant, but you were signing your covenant of love, loyalty, and devotion to Jesus Christ. And I trust that those of you who were there last, evening, uh, last Sunday evening and you're here this morning, I trust that your determination is even stronger now that almost a week has passed, to go on and to go forward with God. I celebrate with this church and with the pastor and leadership in what God is doing. And I believe if we stay the course, if we keep going in the direction that we're headed, there are very few churches, I will not say any, but maybe, maybe, just enough to count on one hand, there are very few churches that have three prayer meetings each week with no limit on time. And a very serious and a very earnest heart cry to God. If we can stay the course, I don't mean necessarily uh, um, having more prayer meetings, although we could not pray too much, but if we can be sensitive to the presence of God and to the release of divine power, I believe that the tide 
will rise and rise and rise. I'm more convinced now than ever before that a mighty spiritual awakening is the only answer to the needs of Northern Ireland or Ulster. There are no answers in Stormont or Westminster. In fact, in fact, I have the audacity and the boldness to say that a lot of our problems in the last six to 12 months have begun there. They've begun there. And they're going to get worse. But let us look to the Lord. I have come with my heart open to the Lord and sensitive to the Holy Spirit to bring you what I believe to be the Word of God this morning. And remember, I've come to preach to my wife's husband. I'm in Africa today because God called me through my own sermon that I was preaching to a group of pastors. And very often God has spoken powerfully to me as I've been bringing the word to others. And I trust that will be the case this morning. Now we're turning to the last book in the Bible, which you will know as the book of the Revelation. I trust you read the entire Bible. I think I raised that issue before, as I'm sure Pastor Bertie has done often, and uh, some of the other pastors and preachers, uh, clearly. You need to be reading the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Um, I'm reading through the Word of God again. I've just finished the book of Deuteronomy um, at midnight last night. And I was with Moses as he took his last trip. Some say the angels guided him on that last tour up in the regions of Mount Abram to see the promised land. Some say that God gave him a vision. He was aged 120. It's also reported that he wrote the entire book of Deuteronomy on the last day of his life, and he died at the end of that day. So I was on a journey with him, and I felt in very good company. But I did not see the place where he was laid to rest. Nobody knows, not even the devil, and not even the angels, where that great, great, great leader, lawgiver, and that great intercessor who stood between the altar and the dying as his brother Aaron and himself um, rushed with a censer before the Lord to, to, to turn away the plague. What a, what a mighty man. I was in his company. And as you read the Word of God and study it, you will feel the company, the companionship, and you will see the faces at least the imaginary faces and hear the voices of those great servants of God. And God will prepare you for this generation to walk the walk and to build the kingdom of God. Now we're at chapter 2, if you found the place, after my delaying, and we're reading uh, the first of the seven. Um, yes, they are amazing letters, I was going to say that, but um, they're quite disturbing quite disturbing, and most certainly this one is. With our Bibles open, I think we'll pray first. Gracious Father, it has been a powerful introduction uh, to the service, to the preaching of the Word of God, to have my dear uh, younger brother, uh, Stephen, leading the service and leading these great and powerful and inspirational hymns, and to lead us right, right into the very presence of God in the opening prayer. That was awesome. And I pray that the awesome presence of God would hover over us, not just this morning, but tonight in the meeting here as well, as the word is once again brought, and in the prayer meeting on the Wednesday, uh, the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of the incoming week, may the glory of God be manifested not only in this house, but in the community around and about. I pray that the day will come, and maybe even during the course of the next week, 
that motor cars and lorries will pull to a halt on the road outside the church because they feel constrained to do so. They may not understand, but they may feel that they need to pray. And they may feel that they need to seek God, and they may even drop into the house that's nearest to the church and say, please, can you tell me, can you help me how to find Jesus? That's how it was during the great 1859 revival. We know, we know. That's how it was in the island of Lewis at the end of the 40s, 1949 and into the early 50s, when you used your servant Duncan Campbell, many, many didn't even make it to the church. They fell in the ditch on the side of the road, weeping and crying for mercy. And some of them lay there for hours or even days, weeping and repenting. Lord, I pray that you would do unusual things in this community at this time. When your people are praying, anything, anything, anything can happen. Lord, don't let the devil put a damper on the prayer life of this church. Don't let anything, anything happen to grieve the sweet paraclete of heaven, the Holy Spirit. We heard about a certain day and a certain hour and minute on the clock when the Holy Spirit was grieved in a place called Bally Robert, not far from Glengormley, during a 10-month mission. Something happened. And after 10 months of soul saving and wrecking the kingdom of darkness, something happened. The Holy Spirit withdrew. I pray that that will not happen in the workings of God in this church and community at this time. I pray that it will be noised abroad that Jesus is in the house. Now, Lord, I pray that you would hover over the Word and the one who has been uh, requested to speak it in your name this morning. I am deeply, deeply, deeply broken and humbled to realize I am here to speak on God's behalf, and I pray that I will not falter. I am just a man just a clay vessel, Lord. I pray for that anointing that breaks the yoke. I pray for that anointing that will set the captives free and that will indeed bring release and bring blessing and power to the people of God. Come to us, Lord. We've been praying many times, Lord, this morning and throughout the week that you would stand amongst us in all your risen power. Uh, today. What mighty power brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. We're praying for that power, that power to be felt here today because the one who has risen from the dead is walking around this sanctuary and looking into our hearts and stretching out his nail-pierced hand, touching our shoulder and doing something for us. There's a lot of people here today, and they need you to do something for them if they're going to make it. We talked earlier about some who are setting themselves up to fail. And that must never happen. That is not something that you want. You never wanted Peter to fail. You never wanted Thomas to fail or the other disciples to fall short of the glory of God before Calvary. But they did. They did. And you said you were praying, and we believe because of that they got back again. Lord, come to us now. I pray for the anointing of God afresh on my mind and my lips. And, Lord, my life as I stand before the people. Bless your word and make it live. Cover us with the blood of Jesus, both pulpit and pew. I pray that you would seal the doors, Lord, from the powers of darkness. Seal the doors, Lord, of our minds. 
seal our ears, Lord, from the whisperings and the evil surmisings of the devil. We want to hear one voice and only one voice. Come thyself, Lord, as we surrender ourselves to you and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the verse number one of chapter two, the book is Revelation. And this is a revelation, actually. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. He walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and not fainted. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That was a very beautiful way for Jesus to end that letter to the church at Ephesus. Yes, Jesus wrote these seven letters, and the angels were the postmen, and they delivered the messages to the pastor or pastors of the churches, and the pastors of the churches shared the contents. But here, there were a lot of um, damaging and concerning things that Jesus had to say to the church, but what a beautiful and inspirational end, particularly about the overcomer. God wants you to be an overcomer. I see a young man over here on my left side, and I think he's asleep. Uh, I hope I didn't put him to sleep. Um, in Africa, I, I used to warn the people, it's very, very warm there, and the meetings are long. If you go to sleep, uh, I will deal with you. And I would normally have a bottle of water in the pulpit, and I would unscrew the top. And I would say, now, if I find you sleeping... I'm going to come down right beside you, and I'm going to baptize you. Not like you were baptized on Sunday evening fast. I said, I'll do it in the Anglican way. I'll pour it on your head. And my wonder, I'm seldom in a service, but I got baptizing somebody in that way. I actually pour, and I keep pouring. And he looks up, and he's so repentant, so repentant. <laughs> but it wakes up the entire service. So I could do it here this morning. So I don't want you to go to sleep. Seriously. The devil doesn't want you to hear the word of God. Did you notice that verse we just read? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. It doesn't say he that hath ears. We all have ears. And physically, I hope they're in good functional uh, order. But it's talking about the inner ear of the heart. The majority of people the majority of Christians in church, they come and they're coming regularly to the house of God and they're hearing, but they're not hearing. They could not even tell you the text by the time they got to the inner, not to mention the outer door. Imagine. The devil will stupefy you. He will actually... Block your mind to keep the word of God out. 
You might as well not be in the house of God at all. And I plead with you to ask God to help you to concentrate and to help you to hear. He that hath ears to hear. In fact, it's stated in practically every letter that is written here. He that hath ears to hear. That is, the person who really wants to hear from God. That means those who are serious and you're reaching out for the word of God like your life depends on it. Lord, speak to me. I need to hear from you. There could be somebody in this house today and you've prayed, Lord, I need to hear from you in this service. I need to hear. I need a word. I need, I need, I need you to do something for me. Because you feel vulnerable like those I mentioned at the beginning. That you're not making it. I repeat, God does not want you to fail. The devil does. And there's a crowd of people outside there and they want you to fail. And they're working on you. And at the moment it may be going their way against you. God does not want you to fail. And this is your word. This word is for you. My text is right there in the early part of the service uh, chapter. And it's very, very shattering. I have somewhat against thee. That's my text. A controversy with God, or God having a controversy with you. God is saying to some of us, indeed he's saying to all of us, myself included, I have somewhat against you. And what is it? He answers immediately, thou hast left thy first love. That is, you don't love me as much as you did at the beginning. You don't love me as much as you did on the first day. How many husbands here today love their wives as much as they did on the first day? How many wives are here today who love their husbands as much as you did on your wedding day? The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is what happens to a married couple. That is, when they stop loving each other. When last did you look into your spouse's eyes and say, I love you, I love you more today than I did yesterday? I give you liberty to ask my wife if I ever say that to her. How many of you have done that? How many of you get down on your knees during your devotional time? In the morning. How many of you whisper and pray from your heart those lovely words, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, if ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. I'm meaning it. I have a prayer diary, and if you were to read it, you couldn't because you couldn't read my writing, and the only person who can is my wife. But you would find very, very, very many notations of that statement, and many, many others quite like it. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I want to say to you that all the problems in the church of Jesus Christ today can be summed up in that statement. We have stopped loving Jesus. We have stopped loving our dear, wonderful, and precious Lord, and we don't know it.
we don't know it. There is something insidious and stealthful. There's a level of subtlety and deception and wickedness on the part of the devil. He has injected an opium into us, and we have stopped loving Jesus a long time ago, and it hasn't caught up with us yet. It's a bit like Mary and Joseph leaving Jesus behind in the temple, and they went two days' journey. Two days' journey, and they didn't miss him. They didn't know he was not in their company. Do you know Jesus is in your company, that he's with you? I repeat, all the ills of the church can be summed up in that statement. Thou hast left thy first love. And do you know what? There are problems in the church of Jesus Christ uh, throughout Africa where there's revival and where there's hundreds of thousands getting saved, including millions of Muslims to boot. There's a lot of problems in the church throughout the whole of Europe and the United States. There's a lot of problems in the church of Jesus Christ in Northern Ireland. A lot of problems. And it's because believers have stopped loving Jesus, and because we have stopped loving Jesus, we find it difficult to love each other. I want to talk about that perhaps a little later on. There could be people on this side of the church that you haven't shaken hands with deliberately, that you haven't looked into their face, spoken to them for months. There are some churches, there are people sitting on this side and they've not talked to somebody on this opposite side for years by choice. And I want to say to you, as long as that continues, there will be no revival. God will not be pleased. The devil will be clapping his hands and he'll be saying, these Christians, they're doing my work for me. They have tied up the whole thing. And there's going to be a show in town, in that church. Because I've got them just where I want them to be. And you don't dare make an excuse for yourself. If you are behaving in that manner, you are the devil's instrument in hindering revival. In hindering prayer being answered. In hindering your loved ones from getting saved. You are contributing to our lovely province called Ulster going down the tubes or the slippery slopes into God knows where in the future. Oh, you say it couldn't be as serious as that. It's more serious than that. You've got to believe me. I don't want the devil to anesthetize your conscience. I want the Holy Ghost to touch you in such a way that you will feel everything and see all the light that he wants to come your way this morning. I have somewhat against you. Has God a controversy with you? It's the Lord saying or asking of you, where have you been for the last month? You know that place where you used to rendezvous with me? We used to talk. You were never in a hurry. You'd read and shed tears over the Word, and you'd stain the pages of your Bible with your tears, and you stained the pages of your Bible with praying breath. Remember those times? You prayed and told God you were going through, and you prayed for your family that they would not let Jesus down, and if your family, if you can prevail on that point, that they won't let Jesus down, they won't let you down. Either praying for your church and praying for the community. The Lord says, where where have you been? I've missed you. And that rendezvous point, you know, that wee place 
in the quiet corner of your room or your office or your living room. And the voice that was often singing hymns and worshiping God as you did those not menial duties at all at the kitchen sink. There's no menial duty carried out there or anywhere else. Very necessary. Like the little plaque that states somebody had it hanging in their kitchen, divine service rendered here every day. And like old brother Lawrence, who in the Middle Ages wrote a little book entitled Practicing the Presence of God, he used to say that as he cleaned those big pots in the refractory or uh, uh, in the kitchen, big black pots that had been over uh, the coals and the turf and the coal, and they were as black as coal. And he says, I, I enjoyed so, so much of the presence of God as I cleaned those big pots every day. I was in communion with God. As he cleaned those pots, the angels were all around, and Jesus was there. You hearing me? I want to talk now about the background to this text, Ephesus. I've been there, not once or twice, many times. I know Ephesus as well as I know Banbridge and Dungannon. Today, it's a huge heap of magnificent, monumental ruins. And in the Ephesus that the early Christians knew, there's not a single church where it used to be. There was a population of hundreds of thousands, maybe in excess of a quarter of a million people living there. It was the commercial center of the whole of Asia. It nestled on the edge of the Caister River that had five harbors, so it was a busy, busy, busy place of commerce. And it was on the edge of the Aegean Sea. I know the place. And I brought samples of soil and sand and rocks from there. I've walked everywhere, nearly everywhere anyway, in that region, because it's of interest to me. And I want you to know that when God says something, he means it. When he says, repent or else, he means it. When he says, if you don't repent, I will remove the candlestick. What does that mean? Does he mean that there's a candlestick that casts a little bit of light in the, in the meeting place and he's going to come in and take that? No. He is actually going to demolish the very building and scatter the very congregation until there's nobody, nobody left. And that's exactly what he did. You know, dear people today, unless I am mistaken, there is an element, not an element, there is a big element of the judgment of God that's at work in the church. There's things that have gone on for years and years, and there's been no effort to put them right. I'm talking about the church in general terms now. Things have happened. And the church has got out of touch with God, and it's got into a bad place. It's backslidden. And God has been trying to get our attention for a hundred years and more. And he has sent uh, trouble our way. He has sent tsunamis and he has sent earthquakes. And he has sent uh, a financial crash, not once or twice. He has rocked the nation or nations with two world wars. And we've had a civil war for 40 years, although our side never admitted it. And there is something even more insidious than any of those things that's working, working, working underneath.
When the water is deep, you can never see the current that's down many, many meters. There's things going on, I am saying, and it's contributing to the ripening of our nation for judgment. I want to say this, and I say it with some conviction. The whole of the United Kingdom is one extended Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear me. The whole of the United Kingdom and the islands around is a part of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's worse than the first Sodom and Gomorrah. There might have been a few thousand, maybe ten or twenty thousand, that comprised those two sister cities and other satellite communities in the Jordan Valley. But by comparison, I want to tell you, you're talking about billions of people, or millions of people in the United Kingdom. Let's confine it to that. 68 million or thereabouts. One big Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to say to you, quoting another, I'm not sure if it was Billy Graham who said, if God does not judge Britain and America for their sins of homosexuality, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no apology coming for that Sodom and Gomorrah or any other one. I am walking softly, but I am speaking the word of the Lord. Repent, or else I will remove the lamp stand. I'll put the church out of existence. Incidentally, the only church in these seven that survived down for the last 2,000 years was the church in, uh, in Smyrna. Am I right there? Smyrna it was, 50 miles away from Ephesus. And it was a church that experienced very severe persecution. You know, if the church had a baptism of persecution, a baptism of persecution... Arrests and ill treatment of Christians, it would help to bring the church back onto its knees and it would help us to love and appreciate each other more. You know, in Eastern Europe during the uh, harsh times of the so- in the Soviet Union, uh, a lot of Christians and, and some maybe who were a bit dodgy in terms of being born again, they, they all appreciated and respected and loved each other because of the hard times. The Lord is hearing me as I speak. And who knows, maybe the postman is already carrying a letter marked persecution for the church in London, Leicester and Leeds, Belfast. It would take something like that, and I believe it will come before Jesus comes. And I'm not speaking about the Great Tribulation. I have somewhat against thee, thou hast left thy first love. Let me talk a wee while just about the church there. It was born in revival. There have been many churches born in revival. You know, I've been in situations in Africa when churches have been born just in front of me. I've been this close to seeing churches born. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about... Uh, uh, God working in great power in a gospel campaign and many getting saved and all those people gathering around on the last day saying, we want a church. We want, we want to meet every, every week and we want to meet during the course of the week for fellowship and prayer. We want to form a church. And right there in front of me, my wife and I have seen churches coming, into, coming out of the womb. We have been there Maybe not as the midwife, but we've been certainly there as observant observers, seeing what God can do. And it's, 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 it's awesome. It's wonderful what God is doing. 
when the church is suffering the judgment of God, that's a different, a different thing. But revival. This church was born in revival, and there was a lot of opposition. A lot of opposition. When the devil's purse is punctured, as was the merchant men who made those wee goddesses, those wee um, models of the temple Diana. I've been at the place where the temple of Diana stood. There's only two or three or four big pillars. In fact, the big church where John pastored, uh, the stones, a lot of the stones and columns of the temple of Diana were taken to help to build it. Hallelujah! I'm saying the devil was in the very backyard of the church. But when the gospel was being preached, the Lord um, uh, evicted the, the devil. And that big temple was burned not once but several times and then demolished. And I'm saying there was revival and people brought their, their hardware. We had a mission in our church in Van Ridge some years ago. And we had a godly preacher from America. I think he's gone home to heaven now. He's quite a young man. was quite a young man when that happened. Jeff Goodwin. And uh, he preached and he had been a, a rock star. And he was warning the people about the dangers of rock music. And all the uh, different uh, genres of music that are around. And they're still around. And a lot of Christians are listening to them. In their cars as they travel and in their homes. The devil's the devil's music, demonic music. And it's pulling you down and you don't know it because you're not in touch with God anymore. And he warned the people about all these things and about the lyrics and so on. And we brought in a big wheelie bin. In fact, maybe two of them into the front of the church. And the people were invited, bring your music. Bring That was the time of records and, and cassette tapes and uh, CDs were coming in, videos. And they filled the big bins and after the mission was over, we burned. We had a fire outside the church in the car park. And there's a whole lot of stuff I'm saying in the church that needs to be burned. There's a whole lot of things in our homes that needs to be taken out and burned. There's books and there's magazines that don't have the blessing of God. Indeed, they've got the curse of God. And the, they've got the fingerprints of Satan on them. We need to get them out of our house. And out of our children's bedrooms. And we need to burn them, I'm saying. Would you say, what about the price? <laughs> They're very valuable. These things cost hundreds, maybe thousands of pounds. It doesn't matter about the price. Burn them and get free. <laughs> and they had bonfires in Ephesus. I often wondered, where, where was the town square? Where, where, did the, where was the bonfire lighted? The place was so big. The ruins is just a part. It's one of the largest... Uh, um, archaeological sites in the world, but it's with all that confined. The city was very big. They had a bonfire. And the flames were licking the very heavens, I'm telling you. As books of Satanism and demonic spells and curses and all kinds of potions and lotions and clothes and robes, valuable garments of pagan high priests, I tell you that they burn very nicely. They burn very well. I can hear the devils, I can hear the devils scream. And very often as demonic music is burned and uh, some of the devil's stuff, you can hear a screech. You can hear a noise. So the church was born in revival. It was blessed indeed. And I'm sure in those early days there were thousands of believers. Church grew very rapidly. And it had Paul as its pastor. I say a church that's born in, born in revival can backslide. This one did. The church that had Paul as its pastor backslid. He was there for two years. Can you imagine even having Paul for a mission of one or two weeks? Ah, it would have been like a, con, a heavenly convention. He was there for two years. The man who wrote these wonderful epistles. And he went on to write, actually, a letter to this church when he wasn't there in that community. Imagine getting a letter um, written like this and sent to the lifeboat at the Moy. Imagine. 
Your name was at the top. And the signature at the bottom was Jesus, Jesus Christ. Imagine. And in that letter, it said, Ye are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That's where that church was at. Paul as its pastor, but it backslid. It got a letter like the book that we have here called the book of the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. And it backslid. And it was blessed with all spiritual blessings, but it backslid. I have somewhat against thee, thou hast left thy first love. You don't love Jesus as much as you used to. Imagine when you were courting your wife. It didn't matter, hail, shine, thunderstorm or snowstorm. You'd get on your bicycle, if you were as old as me, and uh, you would ride for miles to see your sweetheart. Well, I didn't ride a bicycle to Cork, really, but uh, I felt like it. <laughs> but then after you got married, and a year passed, and two years, but your wife asked you to go down to the garage to get uh, um, uh, two liters of milk, and you see, it's, it's raining outside. Have you not looked outside? I'm not going out anywhere in weather like that. Doesn't, it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't fit in very well with the sacrifices that you used to make. You don't love her as much as you used to. And there's things that you would do that you did for Jesus when you were a young believer, but you wouldn't do them now. There's standards that you had when you were a young believer, but you've abandoned them now. You spent long seasons in prayer and you prayed all over the place. But now, now, you say, oh, that was just, uh, uh, you know, kind of unchecked zeal at the beginning. I've got mature now. Have you? The Bible has a different name for it. and They call it backsliding. You don't love me as much as you used to. I say to all of you here, all of us, including myself, when you think of that wondrous cross on which the young prince of glory died, when you think of the thorns that were placed and hammered into his brow, and you need to see what those Middle Eastern thorns are like. They're the length of my finger and they're pushed into his head. Think of him at the whipping post until he was whipped and he couldn't stand up. He was hanging on the thongs as the cat and nine tails cut into his back. And see him carrying and stumbling beneath the load. Thank God for Joseph or Simon from Cyrene who came alongside, I wish I had that honor to have carried Christ's cross. I wish I had been there to do that. Only one man in the whole of the history of the world had that privilege. And then on the cross, hear the thud dull of the hammer swung low as they nailed my Lord to the cross. He did all that for you. And you've stopped loving him. How dare you? How dare you? How insensitive of you? How wicked is your heart? Is he not worth it and worth more? Much, much more? I ask you where, and I ask you respectfully, I ask you reverently, and I examine my own heart too. Is there not much more we can give, do? Not much more love that we can pour. Remember Mary, who brought the costly box of spikenard ointment worth a whole year's wages, and she broke the box and she poured the contents, not just a drop, but all of it. I say he's worth it. 
See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love throw mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Where the whole realm of nature mine not wear an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands and shall have my soul, my life, my all. Oh, you see, you shouldn't speak with such earnestness when you're speaking about such a touching subject. Why not? Are you not supposed to get or allowed to get excited in church? Are you not supposed or allowed to be earnest? Try and silence me and be thankful you're not in an African service. I have somewhat against thee, thou hast left thy first love. I want to say that here there are ten positives, that is, ten commendations of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. There is one con- condemnatory factor. All the other, all the ten good points were um, they paled into insignificance against the failure and the fault of this church forsaking their first love. The things that were mentioned in the favor of this church, I totted down a few. This church was sound in its doctrine, very fundal, very evangelical. There's a lot of evangelical fundamental Christians in the church in Northern Ireland, and they are fundamentally and evangelically backslidden. Backslidden. There are men who would, they would actually have a boxing match over some points of doctrine, and I've talked to people, and they got so wound up and worked up that they would almost have beaten me with a stick in discussing some subjects. They're evangelical to the backbone and to their their back teeth. But they're not walking with God, and there's no love in their hearts. And they they don't really love Jesus at all. You can be fundamental and evangelical and orthodox through and through, but be nowhere with God. There are people from our evangelical churches who are drinking, they're, 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 they're secret drinkers. And they're secret smokers. And many of them are actually addicted to heroin and, um, and drugs of all kinds. Many of them are gambling on the quiet. They go to the bookies, not in the local town, but in a Time where they're not known, they think nobody knows. But God's not blind. And you say you love Jesus. And you might even, you might even be, you know, in, in some form of leadership in the church. This church, I'm saying they were theologically as sound as a bell, but backslidden. And they were very busy in serving God, I imagine. Um, passionate in service, giving out tracts, we would say, inviting people to come to church, evangelizing, helping conduct missions, get people in, but not walking with God, really. They wouldn't tolerate carnal, worldly compromise. The mention is made of the church of the, or the, the, the sect, the Nicolaitans here, a Gnostic group that condoned sexual immorality. They wouldn't touch that. They said they wouldn't touch it, not even with two barge poles tied to each other. But they were backslidden. And if you read this letter again carefully, you will see that they knew the Scriptures inside out. They could handle the the fine points, but they were backslidden. Away with your exegesis. Away with your Bible knowledge. Away with all your services and sacrifice. How much do you love him? How much do you love him? Do you love him as much as you used to? They even suffered for the gospel. And one day, that will happen here in Northern Ireland. Wait till you see. Wait till you see. There's things being set in motion at the moment that's going to take many people to 
the courts and the prison and heavy fines and all of that. Wait till you see. This is the run-up to the climax of the ages. But I'm saying for the person in this condition, God's, me- God's message is very simple. God's message is very just one word, repent, repent. As I conclude, I want to mention a few things I'm saying that contributes or that demonstrates losing your first love. I want to say that in the church of Jesus Christ today, there is a widespread spirit of unforgiveness. God has forgiven me, and he has forgiven you so much. But sometimes when our brother or somebody, maybe family member, neighbor, when somebody wrongs us, we refuse to forgive them. I have met some Christians, and if they didn't say it, it was on their lips. I'll not forgive that person until hell freezes over. I think that is a very, very blasphemous statement to make. I tell you, if that's what you said and if that's what you mean, you're never going to be in heaven. You are not a Christian. Whatever you are, you are not a Christian. Our Father, which, is, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those or them that trespass against us. If you do not forgive those who have trespassed or wronged you, God will not forgive your sins. Are you hearing me? That's what the book says. That's what the Master said. And if we could clear up this matter of unforgiveness in our lives and in our families and in the church, we would not be on the way to revival. Revival would have begun. Don't tell me you love Jesus if you don't forgive, if you're not willing to let bitterness and resentment go. I say if you don't deal with the resentment and the bitterness, the resentment and the bitterness will deal with you. You're not anywhere with God. You're out of fellowship with Him. God has a controversy with you. I have somewhat against thee. Get rid of the unforgiveness. And then I'll, I'll receive you. It's hard, isn't it? There are many Christians who are economical with the truth. You could not believe their word. I've had um, dealings with many Christians, and their, their word, their word was very, very unreliable. You cannot be a Christian and speak out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. You can't be a Christian and be economical with the truth. Uh, I was intending to deal with the uh, chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3, rather, um, in in dealing with all of these things. And I'll just refer to the texts because I need to wind up and let the next service proceed um, clearly. Ephesians... And you do well to make a note of it and uh, check it out a little later at your leisure. Um, chapter 4 and verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying. This is the church at Ephesus. Putting away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Are you speaking the truth? Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun, sin, sun go down on your wrath. Let me just say this to you. Be angry and sin not. In Northern Ireland, we all can just reach our hand out a little bit and you touch politics. And you see the news. You don't hear it only. You see the news. 
And there's a lot of things that have been going on for a long time and very much in recent days, and it annoys you. There's things that annoy me. You see things going the wrong way, and you see a lot of bad, bad talk and bad behavior and a lot of uh, uh, fighting and, and, and counter-attack and so on. And, and, and if you're not careful, it would make you very angry. But the word says, be angry and sin not. We need to rein in, rein in our thoughts and thinking so that we do not sin against God. Of course we're angry at the wrongdoing, we see. Of course we are angry at the devil and what he's doing. Of course we are angry with bad people, wicked people and their wicked deeds. And people who have got their pernicious agendas. But we need to keep our minds under the blood of Jesus. We need to keep our spirits sweet. We need to keep our hearts in a prayerful state. If we can pray about or for someone or something, we'll not be sinning against them or sinning against our God. Neither give place to the devil. I want to tell you, if you do not give all of your life to Jesus Christ, if you keep a little portion of it, you're giving place to him. You're giving him a finger hold and a toe hold in your life. If you are not going all the way with God, you're giving, you're compromising with the enemy, giving place to him. Let him that stole steal no more. Do you steal? Do you steal? Are you dishonest with money? Have you property in your home or in your name that does not legally, lawfully belong to you? I know of a man some years ago, he was led to Christ in the mission of Willie Honeyman, now in heaven with the Lord. And this wealthy farmer, he got converted and he had to sell one of his farms to pay in order to make restitution. Would you be willing to, 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 to part with a farm of land or at least a few acres to make restitution for wrongdoings if you're a farmer and you own land or if you own property? I want you to know that peace of mind is worth it at any price. Being right with God is worth it at any price. He that stole, let him steal no more. I told you a few weeks ago when I gave my testimony that God held me to it. Before being converted at the age of 14, I was a thief. I would have been a notorious highwayman if I'd lived um, in the 1800s and um, if I'd never met Jesus. Clearly, I'd have hanged on the gallows in Tyburn in London. But I'm saying when I got saved, the Lord told me that he required that which was past. And I had to put right the wrongs that I had done, and it took me three years to do so because I had difficulty in finding the money to make, to make remuneration for the wrongs I had done. You, you need to put things right. And I want to say to you, if you put things right, if you make restitution, it will safeguard your love relationship with Jesus Christ. It'll safeguard your walk with God. It'll deepen and it'll bring maturity and reality to your experience. You see, all these things Paul is saying to the very same Christians that this letter was written to. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away, from you with all manners. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake forgave you. Walk in love as Christ hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord and the husband. Uh, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the saviour of the body. And we're told that the husband ought to love his wife. Tell me, as husbands and wives, and with this I have to close, do you treat each other respectfully? You can be an elder in the church. 
You can be a member of the church. <coughs> you can be a leading Christian in the community. But how do you treat your wife? Or how does your wife treat her husband? And how do parents treat their children? If the way you treat your wife or your family indicated your love or the lack of your love for Jesus Christ, would you pass the test? There's things we say to our wives or wives to their husbands you wouldn't like anybody else to know about. You are not a good Christian. You are not walking with God as you ought if you are not treating each other right. Please hear me. The church is in disarray because our homes and our marriages are in disarray. At least some of them. When we get our homes and our relationships with our spouses back to where they used to be, perhaps we'll get the church back to where it used to be. And it'll be one quantum step in the direction of revival. Oh, my dear friends, you must love me, otherwise you wouldn't allow me to speak this long. But I bring to you the Word of God, and I judge myself by its standards. I have somewhat against you. Has God anything against you today? What is it? I might not have touched upon it, but I want to ask you, are you willing to put it right? Are you? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And remember, your evangelical orthodoxy. The doctrines that you would die for aren't worth that. A snap of your fingers, unless your heart is clean, unless you're in fellowship with God, living in subjection to his word, walking with him in love and in close communion day by day by day. It's a small wonder, you know. It's a small wonder that many professing Christians are not in the place with God where they ought to be because they never read the Bible. And they very seldom pray. And it takes only a very small thing to keep you away from the house of God. A relative, a visitor, a friend coming to see you. It takes a very small thing to keep you at home. You don't love him as much as you did at the beginning. But we can rectify that today. Today. 